Books, Dantry Leyland. I recently saw a comics fan on the Bird app refer to Mark Wade's Flash run, and far more pertinently for this show, Roger Stern's Spider-Man run as mid. After the initial knee-jerk reaction as to what the kids today are smoking, I had to think why someone would have this opinion on one of the single best runs on Spider-Man since the early 70s. And I stumbled upon a thought. Comics and entertainment generally are different now. Everything is built around the big event or major character beats. Very few stories now are as simple as they used to be in that the viewer or reader would turn up every week for 22 weeks for a TV show or every month for a comic book for a consistently good story well told. If you're coming to a particular run of comics or a weekly TV show now, being solid, entertaining stories every week or month isn't good enough. Today's viewers want a big story with big stakes over 10 bingeable episodes rather than tuning in for a dependable but ultimately not terribly consequential episode of, say, Quantum Leap every week. It's the same with comics. A big fat trade paperback is the goal now of a story in which major things happen. This stuff, Wade's Flash, Stern Spider-Man, it's mid. Which, of course, is bollocks. There will always be a place for good stories well told. Now, anyone who listens to this show with any degree of regularity will know that I've felt this for a while. I once read in an interview with Harlan Ellison when I was a kid in which he stated, paraphrasing, it doesn't matter how good Cagney and Lacey is, there's no drama if you know Cagney and Lacey are going to be alive next week. I paused at this interview, which was in Starlog magazine. I wondered how a writer as talented as Harlan Ellison could believe that the only interesting thing that can happen in a story, the only thing we're tuning in for, is death. Following a life... The trials and tribulations, the everyday dramas, the character conflict, that's drama. Death is easy in drama. Making us cur, well, that's the real trick, isn't it? And Roger Stern made us cur. At this point, Stern had been a jobbing writer, turning out good work in other Marvel comics like The Incredible Hulk, whilst Spider-Man had been coasting a little bit. Marv Wolfman's lacklustre run was coming to an end in The Amazing Spider-Man, and the sister book, Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man, had concluded a run by writer Bill Mantlo. A new direction was needed, and Stern, along with editor Dennis O'Neill, provided it. Stern's work all comes from character. He focuses on what works about that character and discards what doesn't, scraping off any additional barnacles that may have accrued over the years. And with Spider-Man, he hit the ground running. Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, issue 43, cover dated June 1980, as a cover by artists John Byrne and Joe Rubenstein. A man with ginger hair and a cravat, a brave sartorial choice, lies on the floor, wounded or dead, we're not sure. Spider-Man hangs from a wall at his side, trying to protect the body. From out of the shadows, three figures, one a woman named Belladonna, approach. It's very moody, very noir, with Spidey's reds and blues highlighted by stark blacks. It's a wonderfully done cover. Pretty Poison is written by Stern, with art by Mike Zeck and Steve Mitchell. 
as our story opens, Peter and his lab buddy Steve Hopkins are working late on an experiment as part of the grad student programme when masked and armed thugs break in. Peter is confused that the thugs are stealing two drums of neoatropine, a substance neither rare nor expensive. Peter bides his time as the thugs ransack the joint, constantly ensuring Steve and the department secretary Deborah Whitman are not in any danger. But as usual, he uses his brains to try and defuse the situation. He nudges some chemicals with his elbow, chemicals he knows are harmless, but will react with the ignited Bunsen burner. This has the desired effect. It explodes, causing the sprinkler and alarm system to kick in. The criminals flee, but not before Peter lands a spider tracer on one of them. This is an exceptionally cracking opening, full of tension and drama. Peter is an uncoiled spring here, biding his time, waiting to see if he needs to do anything or just let the events play out. Stern is spot on with Peter's characterisation here. Prior to this, the Bill Mantlo run had Peter's secret identity shenanigans play out like an old 1950s Superboy comic, with him fretting about the secret at every turn, worried people would make connections where there are none, and even allowing people to be in danger to protect his secret. I always felt this was a bad reading. If someone is in danger, Peter would act, and he'd worry about the secret later. Stern nails that. Peter lets the goons do what they are doing as long as they aren't harming anyone. He contrives a way to activate an alarm without drawing any attention to anyone. In fact, the goons think it's the experiment gone wrong. It's only when one of the goons starts toying with the idea of shooting them because he can that Peter prepares to act. His quick thinking with the Bunsen burner earlier, though, means he doesn't have to. The thing here is writers often assume characters know what we know, and they shouldn't. This is a relatively new lineup of supporting characters, all introduced when Peter started his undergraduate studies. They don't know of Peter's supposed relationship with Spider-Man, and therefore have no inclination to connect the two. Had Peter had to act, he could have simply told them he did martial arts. They don't know him well enough yet to claim otherwise. After the police have been, Peter switches to Spider-Man to locate the goons. This leads him to a crime in progress. A stylishly dressed femme fatale named Madame Belladonna is trying to poison Roderick Kingsley, a prominent fashion designer. She says he's stolen every idea he's ever had. Believe it or not, this is a pivotal scene in 1980's Spider-Man. Now I know what you're thinking. And you're right. Why, you're thinking. Well, lovely listener, whether you realise it or not, this is the first appearance of the Hobgoblin. Roderick Kingsley was Roger Stern's original choice to be the Hobgoblin, a character we wouldn't actually meet for three more years. But if you squint a bit, you can see it. Spidey makes a big deal of how thin Kingsley is. He's shown as being ruthless and probably criminal, and he's set up as being not that big a fan of Spider-Man. Sure, he comes across as a tad camp, possibly even a tad offensive if he's meant to be gay, but he's as good a candidate for the role as anyone else. But anyway, that's all with 40 years of accumulated knowledge. For this story, we get a pretty neat action beat, as Spidey tries to save Kingsley, but Belladonna's gas dissolves his webbing. Spidey realises this is why she stole the neoatropine. It's derived from the Belladonna plant, and she uses it in her gas. Kingsley throws a hissy fit, blaming Spidey for the whole affair. 
Spider-Man reacts well to this criticism by webbing Kingsley to a chimney on the roof. With the trail lost, Peter heads to the Daily Globe, where he's currently on staff as a photographer. He hits up, but not on, Sandy Jones, an editorial girl Friday, which I presume means she does any and all jobs that come her way. Rather oddly, she tells Peter she doesn't pose for anyone, which implies people have A. asked her to pose, and 2. presumably without any clothing. Peter assures her it's nothing tawdry like that. He just wants to know more about Kingsley. Sandy tells Peter that Kingsley is loathed in the fashion world for stealing designs and ruining other smaller businesses that are competition for him. Remember that little nugget of foreshadowing for later. By pure chance, Kingsley is having a fashion show tonight and Sandy has no one to cover it. Kel surprise! Peter is available. Peter preps for the meeting by preparing something he thinks will counter Belladonna's gas and, as expected, Belladonna shows up. The final action beat has some lovely visuals from Mike Zek, often aping but not stealing from Steve Ditko. And Stern does a great job here of making us actually like the villain Belladonna more than the victim, Kingsley. Kingsley's pretty scummy from the get-go. And there are hints that Belladonna has reasons to hate him. Hints that will be explored the next time she appears. Belladonna is a pretty neat villain as well. She's no cleavagey slutbomb, as she would have been in the 90s. Rather, an elegant and well-dressed femme fatale. She reminds me of Sybil Shepherd in Moonlighting. Her attire is also a clue, again, as we will see later. Overall, this is a great issue. It deals with Peter and his life as it currently is very well, introduces two new villains and tells a story, albeit without wrapping it all up, as Belladonna escapes. As Stern's first issue, it sets out his stall. Good, solid, well-told Spider-Man stories. Which is why it's weird that the next issue is a filler. Well, kind of. According to Stern, they were a bit behind schedule, and, quote, sitting in a drawer of the Spider office was the first part of an unfinished two-part Spider-Man story started by Marv Wolfman and Steve Lealoa. With editor Denny O'Neill's blessing, I copy-edited that story to fit it into current continuity, and it became Spectacular Issue 44. Then I plotted the next issue, finishing the story, and we were back on schedule. End quote. To be fair, it's not a story I'm a big fan of. It does establish that the Vulture's name is Tombs, and that his power pack does, as we've long suspected, give him a measure of super strength. But the Vulture making a play for the mob seems out of character for him. So issue 46 brings the run back to where it was, written purely by Stern, with art again by Mike Zek, but this time inked by Bruce Patterson. Deadly is the Cobra is the title, and it's enveloped in a gorgeous cover by Frank Miller and Bob McLeod. In mid-air, the Cobra kicks Spidey in the head. Spidey is wrapped up in his own webbing by the looks of things, and on a nearby rooftop and on the street below, cops draw their guns and take aim. The word dynamic may have been created for it. Or maybe the word dynamic was created for the splash page, which is equally gorgeous. Highlighted by some simply stunning colouring by Petra Goldberg, Spider-Man's symbolic head and shoulders tower above Riker's Island prison. Flashlights from the tower shine down upon the churning sea. Small boats cruise the island sanctuary for potential escapees, and the rain lashes down, hitting flesh like needles. All this security is for a reason. 
Rikers Island Penitentiary is home to a breed of criminal called the Supervillain. For weeks, Klaus Voorhees, a.k.a. the Cobra, has been rubbing his hands raw in an effort to loosen a small corner of the grating covering the air vents in his cell, and his determination has paid off. With even a small corner prized free, the Cobra is able to slide his malleable body into the crawl space and escape. I've often wondered if the tomb's character on the X-Files was based upon the Cobra, as the power set and even the look is very familiar even if his name is taken from a different Spider-Man villain. That Voorhees can slide through even the smallest and windiest of gaps make him a formidable foe, even if he's never really been given his due. Well, for now. Normally, he teams up with the brutish Mr. Hyde, but this time Voorhees dismisses Hyde, leaving him to rot in his cell. A tantalising opener, leading into a wonderful panel of Spider-Man swinging through the New York skyline. He's pondering how he treated Deb Whitman last night. I can answer that for you, Peter. You treated her like cack. This particular incident he's referring to is from Amazing Spider-Man issue 209, which I have already covered as part of my Daily Denny series back in episodes 157 through 161. Who says this isn't the Marvel age of shameless self-promotion? Anyway, Deb is far more forgiving than Peter deserves, and they arrange a date for later. Deb is just one of the new supporting cast for this era of Spider-Man, and Peter quickly bumps into two others, Phil Chang and Steve Hopkins. It's easy to look at this now and see the creative team trying to diversify the cast and give Peter a wider circle of friends from which to derive stories. This was mostly successful, and the TA group Peter worked with were an interesting addition, but because they weren't created by Lee and Ditko or Lee and Ramita, they've largely been forgotten. There's some nice banter between the three before Peter takes a call from Barney Bushkin, head of the Daily Globe. He's offering Peter a nice big fat bonus for pictures of the Cobra, who he's just learned has escaped. Barney is under the impression Peter can pull this rabbit out of a hat because he regularly gets pictures of Spider-Man. And Barney is pretty sure one super person who climbs walls is the same as any other. Peter hates working for the Globe, a Rupert Murdoch-style tabloid, but the terminally cash-strapped Peter Parker always needs money, and the Globe pays tabloid money, which is really very good. Still, you can't check out just yet. Peter has been assigned to preside over the freshman chem labs. This is all good, solid character stuff. Stern introduces the cast, gives them all something to do, establishes the relationships between them, and allows a decent reason for Peter to actively be looking for the main villain, rather than passively bumping into him. It's all very well set up, including everyone's dislike of Marcy Kane, resident bitchy Cordelia alike. It's nice to be reminded of the core tenet of Spider-Man comics, that the Peter Parker stuff was every bit as important, if not more important, than the Spider-Man stuff. And the minute everyone knows his secrets or everyone has a superpower, the strip just isn't as interesting. Spidey finds the Cobra and what makes this fun is the Cobra has no interest in fighting Spider-Man. He recognises that he's clearly outmatched and just runs. This shows a level of intelligence that few supervillains have. There's even a cute bit where Spidey simply rips a chimney apart to prevent Cobra from slithering away. Nevertheless, Spidey's overconfidence is his undoing, and he's shot by Cobra's nerve darts. Spidey's constitution is strong enough to fight off the effects, and being shot by the Cobra and being shot at by the newly arrived police causes our hero to lose his cool. He takes out the Cobra and drops him off with the police. 
The police in this case is Lieutenant Chris Keating, another supporting player of the time. He doesn't like Spider-Man, so when Cobra escapes police custody, Spidey can't help rubbing Keating's nose in it. This is a remarkably entertaining done-in-one issue that will nevertheless lead somewhat, with Stern teeing up Hyde, taking his revenge on the Cobra, and a rematch between he and Spider-Man is in the offing. The character beats are solid, the story rattles along, and it's a great, satisfying and full read. Issue 47 features a cover by Al Milgram, in which Spidey is being pelted by diamond-hard shards shot at him by the new Prowler. It's very eye-catching, and would attract any comet stand browser's eye should they happen upon this in the summer of 1980. A Night on the Prowl was again written by Stern, but this time with art by Marie Severin and Bruce D. Patterson. It opens with Peter on a date with Deborah Whitman, when he overhears the expositional news network report that a death over in the fashionable Soho apartment is being attributed to Spider-Man. Peter almost cries into his latte. Spider-Man can't have killed this person, as he's Spider-Man and he's been here all evening. Peter must ditch Deb to examine the scene as our wall-crawling hero. Now, I have to confess, on the one side, this seems a tad dumb. Spider-Man is wanted for questioning in a murder, so let's go to the crime scene and have a look. On the other, how else is he supposed to find out what happened? I mean, it's a fun opener. For one, we see Peter, rather unusually, not avoid a fight with a bully. Rather, he punches the guy's lights out in the back room. Secondly, he clearly blows off a definite shag with Deb to go and play at being Spider-Man. I mean, I get that a murder charge is a big deal and all, but... Could have waited an hour or two, Peter. Anyway, Peter doesn't take the delectable Miss Whitman to the bedroom for a night of timing up, timing down. Rather, he heads over to the apartment block, but in a remarkable show of intelligence, he switches back into Peter's clothes, a natty blue suit with grey turtleneck ensemble. To counteract this intelligent move, he rather stupidly leaves his web pack on the roof. I wonder if that'll come back to haunt him. Peter blags himself into the crime scene as a reporter and learns from Detective Snyder that there were a number of robberies in this swanky apartment block, but this one, belonging to Mr. Steve Doherty, was the only place Spider-Man was caught in the act. Doherty is a sub for his attractive friend, the Dom, Mrs. Desiree Von Pope. She tells the investigators that she, her bodyguard, Charlie Maguire, and her friend, Doherty, arrived home and witnessed Spider-Man robbing the place. Maguire opened fire and pursued the thief, only for Spider-Man to callously throw Maguire off the balcony to his death. Peter smells a large rat and takes a look himself, pointing out that Spider-Man doesn't leave large holes in the wall when he crawls. Ballistics also dig out some steel-tipped flechettes from the wall. It's a bigger frame than that around the wedding feast at Karna. To further pique Peter's interest, Twin Peaks, if you will, Peter realises that all these robberies involved fashion designs, and when this is pointed out to Mrs. Vaughan Pope, she reacts badly, especially to the name Kingsley. Like when you introduce a Tribble to a Klingon. Before this line of inquiry can be followed, the police find the webpack I referred to three paragraphs ago, which stitches Spidey up, and no mistake. Still... Peter knows that in reality the evidence is pointing to Hobie Brown, the Prowler, last seen way back in Amazing Spider-Man 93 and covered on this show in episode 142. I'm being very helpful today. Spider-Man kidnaps Hobie from his bed and we are all just very, very lucky Hobie doesn't sleep nude. 
Hobie tells Spidey that he quit and all of his stuff has been stolen anyway. So we've set up a nice little mystery here. It's also beautifully intertwined with what has gone before. The apparently insignificant Roderick Kingsley affair has come back. There's a new prowler in town and Spider-Man has a murder rap over his head. Stern even manages to include a lovely moment of reflection as Spider-Man passes the house he grew up in. Aunt May's house, apparently standing derelict since Amazing Spider-Man issue 200. But we're not over yet. Another previous storyline rears its pretty head as Bella Donna makes a return appearance. She's pulling the strings on the new Prowler, and he explains that Maguire's death was an accident, and even arguably, Maguire's own fault. It won't matter to the cops, though. Even though the new Prowler is no angel, he's not a murderer. The police will still throw the book at him. Belladonna tells him as long as he does what she says, all will be well. Now, if you're reading along and know this new Prowler looks familiar to you, but you can't quite place him, well, that's because he's the cat, the infamous burglar from Amazing Spider-Man issue 30. That's a seriously deep cut from Stern, although I would argue the logic of Peter remembering him in such detail, given he met him once about five years ago, Marvel time. Anyway, once Peter has dropped by Aunt May, who is entertaining a new man pal, Nathan Lebensky, Peter sets about finding the Prowler again. To his credit, Peter quickly deduces that finding him proved far too easy, and that this must be a trap. Like Obi-Wan Kenobi, Spider-Man decides the easiest way to see if it is a trap is to spring the trap. Which always seems silly to me. Surely if you know it's a trap, then avoiding it is the better move. I mean, that's probably not as dramatic, though. Nevertheless, despite knowing it's a trap and deliberately entering the trap, our hero still falls for the trap. Belladonna traps both Spider-Man and the Prowler in an air-proof chamber and starts pumping in the gas. Severin does a really good job with the art in this issue, aping Ditko's body language and facial structure for the cat slash Prowler, but giving everything an 80s sheen. This doesn't look like a soulless homage or rip-off like some Jack Kirby riffs could occasionally be, rather a modern updating of the Ditko style. I don't know if anyone was crying out for the return of the cat, but that's probably why it works. It's a, <laughs> I remember that guy, moment, rather than played as a big reveal. And on that level, it's satisfactory. The Peter Parker lifestyle soap opera is well handled, with his dumping on Deb, inadvertent though it may be, callous and cruel, and his new job role providing us with new and interesting characters. All round, another solid issue. The Belladonna story concludes in issue 48, which has a cover by Frank Miller and Al Milgram. It's a cracking, hard-case, crime-style noir cover, with Kingsley standing over Spider-Man's body that has a gushing and bloody chest wound. Belladonna's fedora-bedecked face looms menacingly in the floaty head style, beloved of comics of the time. Double Defeat was by the same creative team. Spider-Man manages to save himself and the cat's life with some ingenious escapage, but Belladonna was never here, her face being a TV screen that Spidey couldn't discern behind the frosted glass. Spidey posits the cat slash Prowler with Detective Snyder and flees the scene. The opening is once again pretty good. Spider-Man's escape is fast and plausible and his concern for the Prowler is a real character beat. His reaction to the police is also in character, even when they aren't giving him grief, Peter has a problem with authority figures and always has, going back to the lead Ditko Romita days. He respects the role of the police, but he's not someone comfortable with being told what to do. 
Snyder saying that he could blow the case by getting the Prowler to confess before his rights had been read, and that Spider-Man should come down to the station to make a statement are all perfectly reasonable. But yet again, Peter's dislike of being ordered about causes him to act like a bit of a jerk. He does at least acknowledge this in his thoughts later, as well as acknowledging his own fiery temper and how it can occasionally get him into trouble. Still, Peter heads home. There's yet more interesting and rather mundane character beats that emphasise Peter's distinctly unglamorous lifestyle. He strips off his costume, which is soaking wet due to the sprinkler system going off when he escaped from Belladonna's trap, his light goes out, and then J. Jonah Jameson calls asking Peter why the hell he's still working for the Globe. This is foreshadowing that Jonah wants Peter back at the Bugle, setting up events that will occur in The Amazing Spider-Man. Deb drops by, and Peter tries to fix his light, but he's no electrician, and it sets fire to the massive teddy bear, actually a dog, which was given to him by his friends when his furniture needed recycling. He and Deb decide to take the dog to the trash and go for a coffee. I miss the giant dog. It's been a fixture of Peter's apartment since all his friends joined together to help him replace his damaged goods, but Peter was never that enamoured of it. He thinks it's a bit silly for a grown man to have a massive teddy bear. This leads to a gag of a well-dressed man picking up the burr from the trash and taking it home to fix it. Apparently this man is Len Wein, the writer who gave Peter the burr in the first place, being the man who wrote the furniture issue. It's not made clear if Deb and Peter spend the night together, but it's the next morning when we pick up with Peter after dropping by the Prowler, who escapes from hospital. Peter uses his press credentials to blag his way into Loft Rents Incorporated to locate the name of the person who owns the loft he almost bought it in last night. Peter consults the Rolodex, which ages this story like nothing else, and learns the apartment was owned by... Desiree Vaughan Pope. Dun dun dun! Peter switches to Spidey and hightails it to Vaughan Pope's other apartment, but in fact terrorises her sister Narda. Spidey learns that the sisters had a successful cosmetics business that Roderick Kingsley destroyed simply because he could. I told you to pay attention earlier on, didn't I? It seems the business of not believing people are innocent until proven guilty goes back more than a few years of Twitter. However, this tale of cross and double cross takes a twist. The sisters were ultimately proven not guilty of what Kingsley destroyed them for... But that doesn't matter, because it seems that the business of not believing people are innocent until proven guilty goes back more than a few years of social media. However, this tale of cross and double cross takes a twist, after Spider-Man leaves to prevent Desi Ree, who he believes to be Belladonna, is off to kill Kingsley. It turns out Belladonna is actually Nada. Nada calls Kingsley and tells him Spider-Man has joined her crusade to destroy him. Kingsley is a little bit freaked out, as he does not want his business dealings looking too deeply into. Stern brings all the elements of this crime noir mystery together. The mystery of Roderick Kingsley, who, in retrospect, Stern was setting up for bigger things, is built upon a little more. Kingsley is a scumbag, but in this story he's the victim. Desiree and Nada are the victims, but for this story are the bad guys. It's an interesting tack to make the villain sympathetic and the victim resolutely unlikable. The mystery of Belladonna being her own sister is a plot development that Stern would use later with the Hobgoblin, when we will learn Kingsley has a twin brother, which is a tad convenient, but it works here because this is a short story. Kingsley has ruined the lives of the sisters, and although they don't seem financially to be doing too badly, it has affected both of them differently. 
In addition, the Prowler returns wanting paying off, and he's threatening Belladonna with death. Nada gets cute, and Spidey arrives as the Prowler, named Red, presumably due to the fact that he has ginger hair, as he's about to chuck Nada off a roof. This seems odd to me. Red's become a killer very, very easily. When Charlie Maguire fell off the roof, it was an accident, and Red was broken up about it. His turn to full-blown killer didn't really land. Anyway, doesn't matter now. Spider-Man wraps it all up, and the story concludes. This was quite involved, but still very easy to read, despite the twists and turns of the plot. There are some loose ends, such as what happened to Desiree, but Kingsley will return. Sadly, Desiree has not yet ever come back to the pages of Spider-Man. And that's the early days of Roger Stern's acclaimed run. He will write Peter Parker for a year or so before graduating to the main title, Amazing Spider-Man, where his work will really take off. Rereading these, I kind of get the complaint. Oh, they aren't mid by any measure, but they are very different from today's books. The stories unfold organically at a reasonable speed. The events happen logically. There are no two-page spreads just to pad out the book, no making a story last five issues for the inevitable trade printing, and no mystery box for the reader to uncover. At this point, we have no idea that Roderick Kingsley will become the Hobgoblin. They're simply Spider-Man stories, well told. There's more writing and dialogue in half an issue here than in a full issue nowadays. Neither is better or worse, they're just different. It's mid only in the sense of this being a slice-of-life story, a small part of the ongoing soap opera that is Peter Parker's life, rather than another goddamn boring, senses-shattering event. I know which I prefer. I will return to Roger Stern in the future. Hey kids, comics! It was the dawn of a new age of comic book podcasting. Hey Kids Comics was a dream given form, a place where two generations of comic book fans could work out their differences, peaceably. It was a humorous place where nothing was sacrosanct and it was our last, best hope for joy. But all things end. But from endings can come new beginnings. This is the return of a comic book podcast. The year is 2023. The name of the show is Hey Kids Comics. Michael and Andrew are back with an all-new look at old comics and all old looks at new comics. You can go home again. Hey Kid Comics, monthly from Two True Freaks and wherever you get your comics-related podcasts. Hey Kids Comics! Okay, let's look at the email. That's the new voice I'm experimenting with. (laughs) If you believe that, I've got a bridge I want to sell you. Uh, let's have a look at the email, should we? It would help if I got it up. The email, I meant nothing else. This is not that kind of show. Matt Prather's emailed in. Hello, Matt. Hey, Andrew. Been reading the new Marvel Masterworks Spider-Man reprints. Good. They are quality books. Very expensive books, but still quality. The smaller editions. and Oh, yeah, the small ones are lovely. Yes, I have almost considered buying the Lee Ditko stuff again because they're in those little almost like pocketbook size. I've resisted so far, but who can say how long that'll last? Uh, This, of course, has led me to listen to some older Palace of Glittering Delights. Thanks again for your perspective on this particular run. The Lee Ditko stories are so much fun. Yes, they are. 
You are absolutely correct there, Matt. They are absolutely brilliant. And those who don't know what Matt's talking about, if you trawl back through the archives of this year's show, you will see that I covered every single issue that Stanley has his name on as writer. Whether he did actually write them or didn't, plotted, scripted, whatever it was he considered that he did, I covered them all for Lee Ditko, Lee Ramita, all of the lot, even some of the later stuff that he did long after he left the title. All of that is back in the archives. Andrew, uh, Andrew, no, I'm Andrew. It's very confusing, this. <laughs> it shouldn't be confusing. You should know who you are at all times. Matt continues, I have a John Romita Spider-Man poster hanging in the wall of my art studio. The idea of picking a favourite cover is too daunting. I get that. I mean, I narrowed it down to just Spider-Man, so that was a lot easier. The Wedding Annual is a cover I have been commissioned to recreate with the betrothed standing in for Peter and Murray Jane. So I guess I've looked at that one more than any other. So that one. That's a good choice. That wedding cover came in two different variants, didn't it? If memory serves. You had a Peter Parker Murray Jane one and a, a Spider-Man Murray Jane one. I always think it was a bit of a shame that he didn't actually, you know, draw the wedding issue. Seeing as he introduced Mary Jane Watson. But, you know, too late to worry about that just now. Okay, thank you very much for listening. That was very enjoyable. Well, it was enjoyable for me. I don't want to say if it was enjoyable for you or not. Uh, if you want to email in, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com is the email address. Hey Kids Comics is also returning. Starting in September, new episodes of Hey Kids will begin. I hope you're all going to tune into that as Michael and I kick off a brand new era of Hey Kids Comics excitement. Well, I say excited. Can't promise anything. Uh, and I'll see you all again real soon. Everything's going to be fine. Goodbye.